You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. All right, everybody, our focal passage this morning is Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Feel free to turn there in your Bibles. It will also be on the screen. If you ever need a Bible, you can head over to the Connections desk, and they'll get you one. Further instructions. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. You all can be seated, and any children here can be dismissed to their classes. Good morning. Is this thing on? Good morning. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. And the one that gets to do this more often than not. So thanks for hanging out with us this morning. I'm going to pray. Then we're going to talk about some epic, iconic movie from 2011. God, thank you for your goodness and your grace for these songs, the truths that we get to herald and sing and declare. Thank you that we get to gather together and remind one another of who you are. And, and as we do that, would you remind us of, of who we are in light of, of, of who you are and what you have done for us, the way that you love us, the way that you have sacrificed on our behalf. And God, would you just give us today a heart that beats for you, one that understands uh, our days and our, our limits and at the same time understands that we have a responsibility with our words and the way that we use our time to make much of you and everything. And when we do that, God, will you show us that that is the fullness of life? Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. 2011, Justin Timberlake's cinematic debut. Say it with me. Okay, the movie In Time. All right, anybody? That's good. That's fine if you haven't seen it. Uh, not end times, but I in, like end time. It is Justin Timberlake at his finest. Uh, it is a sci-fi futuristic type deal in this world that they are in. He, he lives in uh, this district called Dayton, and it's like on the low end of society, as it were. There's no money, but time is the universal currency. Uh, essentially, you stop aging at 25, and you look down on your wrist, and you have like numbers and it's counting down and that's when you die that's that's the world that they're living in uh in the premise so you can earn time and you can spend time and you can transfer time the way that you get anything is to give away some time and and you can get that back in different ways the premise in a nutshell seems to be like survive like just live if you just live then you're doing okay live one more minute that's kind of the thing and the rich can do what they, whatever they want to do, because they have all the time in the world, they're not living minute to minute. And that's where you get like the class structure of the scene. The poor, they don't know where their next minute is coming from, where their next breath 
of life will come from. And so you have theft and you have murder and all kinds of violence. Um, it's not the greatest movie uh, no one has ever seen. But, but it is an interesting take and it's an interesting kind of thought experiment. Like what, what if? What if your days were numbered and you knew the number and you just look down and, and that's how much time you had? Would it change how you live? Or would you still continue to, to live just to survive and to live another day? And, and just for our information, your days are numbered. You just don't know the number, all right? The problem with using time to merely just survive and just to exist is that you don't live on purpose. You don't live with any type of purpose. And, and so we, when we're not mindful of time, we just kind of respond to every impulse rather than, than shaping time through the minutes and, and the days and the months and the years and the decades maybe that, that we are giving. For me, time is, I, I think, as I like look inside of myself, time is, is the most valuable resource. And there's like money and, well, what's your time look like if you can't deal with money? All, all kinds of other resources. But for me, time is, is where it's the resource that, that causes me the most strain and, and anxiety and toil uh, within my brain. I fight for like buffering. And if you don't know what that means, then you've never used like a really low-speed internet, right? But, but if you're watching a video, for example, and, and you see like the little, the little uh, the thing going across the bottom, like, hey, this is the, the seconds that are ticking, and then you see a little other thing that's like colored, well, that's the buffering. And so they're sending information packets in there so that you don't have to wait and the thing just spin and spin and spin. And so that buffering, the more that's there, if you then go offline, you're still good because those information packets have been delivered to your device. That's what buffering is. In my life, I feel that way. I feel like, no, I need more buffering. Like, no, I need more information packets, right? I need more things to be done so that if I, you know, like go offline or whatever, I could still exist. And so I, I feel that. We have conversations around here, like as staff, like Scott's laughing because he's like, yes, gosh, I've heard this like every week forever. Like, it's what we talk about. So anyway, that, that's a resource that I feel. I want to do what I do well. And if I feel like I, oh, well, gosh, I don't have the time to do that, then, then it causes me like strain and anxiety. Um, but for us to do what we do well, we have to know what we're doing. And for us to know what we're doing, we have to know why we're doing it. And so we get to live with purpose. And I know like, Maybe the majority of people don't actually think, like, why am I living? What is a win? What's a win for this day? What's a win for the, the scheme of my life? And so today, we are challenged in how we spend our time and, and how we do that wisely. How we spend our time wisely. And I know what you'd be, you're saying, like, well, of course, all of us in the modern age spend our time wisely, right? And so... When you walked in, we, we sifted the data from each of your cell phones. We're just going to put the screen time up on the screens of each app that you've Right, you get the idea. Like, we, you know that we don't use our time wisely. And I think what Paul is doing, what the Spirit's doing, and what I'm trying to do is say, ah, gosh, like, the way that we use our time and the way that we use our words in that period of time, it's, it's really important. We get to evaluate and assess that today. 
So, so surprisingly, the call for our purpose is not to, to cure cancer. And you might be thinking, if I don't do that, then my life is a waste. Or, or it's not to visit the moon. If I don't do that, then have I really done anything? Or, or not to write a best-selling, life-changing novel that, that makes the New York Times bestseller list. All it. it's, it's not those things. That's not what we see here. But it's to be devoted to the Lord and to his mission that's what, that's what our purpose is. And, and, and here's kind of the big idea. Using time wisely means speaking to God and others with grace and purpose. Right? Using time wisely means speaking to God and others with grace and purpose. The specific call in focus comes down to how we speak and, and to whom we speak with. Right? Who are we talking to and what are we saying? Words matter, and that reality invites us to reflect on the words that we say and, and how we say them and who we say them to. How do we live change, as we've been talking about for weeks? How do we live out the way of Christ with, with our speech and with our time? And I just ask you this question as we jump in. Like, how would your speech change if you lived and spoke with, with purpose? Right? The first thing we're going to look at is this. Be aware as you persist to pray. Be aware as you persist to pray. And I'll just read one verse, Colossians 4, to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So Paul's writing a letter, and, and he's kind of like beginning to, he's circling the runway, he's beginning to land the plane, and this is what he says, right? It's chapter 4, he wasn't writing chapters but, but as we kind of uh, shape it up to give us an understanding of how the book's put together, how the letter's put together, chapter four, the last chapter, he's landing the plane, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, I, I think I know how to make you feel bad about yourself if you are a follower of Jesus. And so I'm gonna do that just for a couple minutes. And, and all I'm gonna do is just read some quotes by Charles Spurgeon on prayer. Okay, that's all I'm gonna do. So, uh, here are a few. Anything is a blessing which makes us pray. You might think, oh, yeah, yeah. And you think, ah, maybe not. Like, when do you pray? Like, you're drawn to pray when things are bad. And I, I hope that we're drawn to pray when things are good and, and those are prayers of thanks. But anything is a blessing when we're drawn to pray. So, so the idea is that, like, if you turn to the Lord, that's good and the circumstances around that might not be good, right? Another one, I would rather teach one man to pray than 10 men to preach. He's taught a lot of men to preach, written books and volumes and, and taught classes on, on how to preach. I would rather teach one man to pray than 10 men to preach. Ah, man, that feels a little indicting, you know? Uh, no man can progress in grace if he forsakes prayer. It is well said that neglected prayer is the birthplace of all evil. If you're mindful, Lord, be near to me, etc. We're walking, we're doing this together. You're less likely to be drawn away to, to anything that would take you away from him. Uh, another one. As well, could you expect a plant to grow without air and water as to expect your heart to grow without prayer and faith? See? I told you, I'm just making you feel bad. That's why we're here today. Um, to pray is to enter the treasure house of God and to gather riches out of an inexhaustible storehouse. 
Is that the way that you think about prayer? Entering into uh, to the, the inexhaustible storehouse of God? And this was the, the quote that I actually sought out when I was trying to find a quote on prayer from Spurgeon. This is it. I think this will be on the screen as well. I know of no better thermometer to your spiritual temperature than this, the measure of the intensity of your prayer. Right? And so as we reflect, and I promise we shouldn't leave feeling bad about ourselves. I'll talk about that in a minute. But, I mean, is this true? Like, you can do all the things, and you can do all the things well, and, and I can work. I, I could probably preach sermons, and, and, and we could do things up here uh, being in tune with, with our instruments and with the vocal melodies, and you can do all the things, and they could teach in Kville and serve coffee and all these things. But when you look and say, yeah, but, but am I doing this by myself, maybe even for myself, or am I doing this with with the Lord, ah, no better thermometer to your spiritual temperature than the measure of the intensity of your prayer. What does your life of prayer reveal about you? If you just look at it and you just wrote it down and somebody read it and they would say, ah, I think this person, they might say, oh, this person doesn't walk with the Lord because they never speak to him, right? Or they might say, well, man, the things that you pray about seem to be whatever. What does it say about about the God that you worship if you just looked at the content of your prayer? And is that an accurate reflection of what you would say about that God? If you say God is, gosh, he's so gracious and he's so kind and he's giving and he, and he wants to, to, to bless those who are his own and he cares for his children, then why, then why don't you talk to him? Right? What do your prayers say about you? Here's the thing. One, if your prayer life isn't how you'd hope, you're not alone. You're not alone in this room. You're not alone on this stage. We read in scripture, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, like, can you just pray? Like, the end of his life is near. Can you pray? And Jesus goes off, and he comes back, and they're sleeping, and he's like, guys, he probably did that. Like, hey, Peter, wake up. What are you doing? He's like, you can't, can you not persist in praying for like five minutes? He leaves, comes back, you know what they're doing? They're sleeping. Right? You're not alone in that. And secondly, it isn't a call to hang your head low in guilt, but man, this conversation is an encouragement to pray. And however you walked down these stairs or down this elevator and showed up in this room today, that doesn't have to be the way that you leave. You can be committed to different things, and you can use your time differently. You can continue steadfast in prayer. That's what he says. Continue steadfast. Keep going. Don't give up. I, I think of like if you're hiking and it's a, a, a you know, bitter winter cold and the wind blows and, and you're, you're bundled up and you're just going through the snow and you, you have a destination, a cabin that you're trying to get to where you know there's a, a fire going and some, some hot chocolate waiting for you. Man, if you stop, you die. Just persist. Continue steadfast. Knowing, and so prayer sometimes is tough. And he's saying, continue on in it, even when it's difficult. He says, pray diligently. And I think in the CSB, it says, devote yourself to prayer. Devote yourself. And that word devotion means loyalty, love, enthusiasm for. So when you think about praying, are you thinking, it's an opportunity for loyalty? It's an opportunity for, for love received and given? Is it something that you are excited or enthusiastic about? 
And then he says, be watchful, staying alert, aware of what's around you, aware of what's within you. What, what does that mean? Well, maybe we go back to that quote, anything is a blessing which makes us pray. If that's true, then, then I get to search my own heart, my own mind. I get to look inside. I get to be aware and, and see where do I turn when things are great? Where do I turn when things fall apart? I get to be watchful and mindful. Remember, Paul's writing this letter, and, and for the first half of it, he's, he's essentially contesting false teachers who, who manipulate the gospel. And so he's saying, pray discerningly. Be, be alert. Pray truth in light of truth, not for show, but full of thanksgiving. Not Thanksgiving stuffing, not Thanksgiving turkey, full of Thanksgiving from our heart, full of gladness in response to what God has done. This is the essence and the motivation to pray, to delight in God. We get to ask him. We get to ask him for things, and he tells us to do that. But we get to depend on him. And man, when we pray, what we're saying is, Lord, I am, I am walking near to you. Like, would you walk near to me? That's what we're saying when we when we pray. Imagine thinking about prayer and instead of it bringing you down, uh, I, don't, I don't pray as much as I would like to or as much as my neighbor or this person's always praying for. Imagine just, just me saying the word prayer and it bringing you delight rather than shame. That's what Paul's saying. Let this be something that, that is delight. And I think the hinge that gets us there is, is this, to gaze upon the work of God behind us, before us, and, and beyond us. To gaze upon his work is, is what incites us to walk with him, to be thankful to him, to be aware, to be alert, and to be walking with him. So what's that have to do with making good use of our time? Well, my default condition tells me that I don't have time to pray. And maybe yours does as well. Like I don't have, I don't have time because why? Because I have to get things done. Because I have to produce, I have to get some more buffering. <laughs> to get some more cushion in my life. I don't have time to pray. My, my opposition to the way time works is to believe that prayer fights against my time. That, that prayer opposes my productivity. And look, and I I'm a pastor, and whatever it is that you spend your day doing, building whatever, making doodads and chachingalarises and doohickeys, whatever it is that you do in your life, caring for people, what, whatever, like, I get paid to pray and preach, And it's hard, because I, I think that I need to produce, that I need to do more things. The reality of life is, and certainly Paul's argument here is, is that we don't have time not to pray. That's what he, you don't have time not to pray. And, and, and if I could believe that and behold that, then I think that I would think that things produced apart from prayer probably aren't worth doing. And that doesn't mean that you can't do whatever it is that you do. My job is no more important than your job. 
I'm just saying I have, I have less excuses. That's what I'm saying, right? Whatever it is that, that we do that, that we're not willing to pray about, it's probably not worth doing at all. So, so I don't think prayer can be a waste of time, but, but for prayer to be purposeful, it gets to be motivated by kingdom realities and, and kingdom truths. Remember, set your mind on things above. That's the context that we're looking at. Cast all your cares because he cares. That's what we get to do. Anything, we get to, to cast all of our anxiety and toil and worry to him, but also what we pray for reflects what we live by. And if, and if all we pray for is, is more of this world and more stuff and more comfort and, and, and for the, the wrinkles to fade and, and to win the game and to, to pass the test, to get paid health, wealth, and happiness, that would seem to indicate that we don't have our eyes fixed above, but on things here and now. And the call in all of this is to set your mind on things above where Christ is seated, where he has won the privilege for us to join him. So what do we pray for? That, that's kind of like the posture he's setting up. This is the way that you get to pray. So what do we get to pray for? Well, we see what Paul asked them to pray for. He says it this way. This is point number two, pray for the mission to move. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. At the same time, so, so do all the things that we talked about, pray that way, but also pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. That's what God does. He opens doors for his word to, to go forth, to change the course of history, to change the lives, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. So the invitation here is, is use your time and words to partner with Paul and the gospel's mission. That's what he's saying to the, to the local church there, and certainly we get to kind of zoom out a little bit. He's saying, I'm in prison for preaching. That's why I'm here. In some ways, then, the word is in chains. But what he doesn't say is, pray that I get acquitted. And that's what I would be saying. <laughs> like, let me out. He doesn't say, pray that I get acquitted. He doesn't say, pray that I have a right to a fair and speedy trial. This is say pray that justice rolls down. He invites the church to pray that he makes unknown things about Christ, known things, and that he would be able to speak clearly in a world of confusion and chaos. Think about it. If I'm in prison, all I can think about is, is how time is fleeting. Gosh, I just feel like this is a waste. When in my week, this is me, when I have to do like dumb, tedious things, I, I get frustrated inside of me because I'm like, I want to do that. That's what I want to do, and I have to do this. It's like, oh, I hate doing this. I, I want to do that. But sometimes, like, doing this is the thing that gets me to be able to do that. And so Paul is not doing, he's not putting together Ikea furniture saying, man, I just want this room to be how I want it to be, right? Gosh, why do I have to do this? He's not doing that. He's in prison. He can't do anything that he wants. Man, last week, my guy Rick Meyer, is he in the room still? 
Hey, Rick. We didn't wear the same shirt today, but it's, it's close. It's all right. Um, Rick and I went and visited uh, a friend in a uh, long-term care facility. And he was, uh, we didn't know if he would, like, know us or whatever. And so we walk up to the door, and, like, he lights up, and he sees us. But, like, he doesn't, he doesn't know us. He couldn't call us by name, but he knows that we should probably know each other. He was, uh, in the moment, sharp and interacting, and, and he's aware of things, but, but the huge memory gaps and, like, long-term memory. Uh, he didn't know us, but we reminisced with, like, birthday pictures. Hey, remember we celebrated a birthday together? Like, I, I was there in that room, right? Showed him his, his baptism video in this room. He was there, but then every 30 seconds... He wasn't there. He's asking the same question. And so we spend, I don't know, an hour with him. And we said the same things over and over and over, whatever. Like he was, you could tell he's trying to piece things together, but he just struggled to put it all together. But one thing he repeated over and over and over again, which I believe is true for him. And I, and I think it's true for us. He said, I need to get out of here and live my life. Like, when can I go home? And he asked us repeatedly, like, can you get me out of here? <laughs> can you take me with you? Well, I don't think that we can do it. Please, can you take me with you? And he, and he said over, I, I, I get up, I turn on the TV, I watch the same shows, I'm wasting my life, go out back, smoke some cigarettes. I don't even smoke, he said. But I go, like it's just, he's just trying to like get through. I'm wasting my life. I need to go back home. I need to, to, to get to work. I need to produce. I need to do some things. I, I'm literally wasting my life in here. I need to get out of, out of here and on with my life. Now, maybe you feel that way. Like life is a waste when you, when you clock in and it's nine to five and you're like, you just use that time as like, or maybe it's five to five seven days a week or whatever it is, you think that that time in your life is just like you black out and you just do whatever it is that you do just so you can clock out and then you can live your life. Or maybe you spend your time hooked up to machines and dialysis or maybe you spend your time hooked up to, to chemo machines and you just think, I just have to get hours of my day, hours of my week hooked up to this thing and I just want to get out of here and live my life, tick tock, tick tock. The clock doesn't stop, long days. When will my life begin in a way that makes any difference? And anyone else might put the mission on hold as we do those things while we sort out the sentence, but Paul invites us to pray for things bigger than ourselves and bigger than our circumstances. Pray that I make known clearly what they don't yet know, that, that Christ is Savior, that he's servant, that he's king, that, that all hope and life and the fullness of life today and forever is found in him and him alone. Would you pray that I would be able to do that, whether I'm in chains or whether I'm free? Paul's telling the church that no matter where we are, Pray like this that God would open wide the door for his word to escape and make a dent in the darkness. Whether you're literally in chains or, or you're in prison, uh, in a prison made in your own head or by your own circumstances, let your words plead with the Lord to make Christ known. Pray, that, uh, pray about everything 
but don't neglect to, to let the kick drum or the, the baseline of your prayer be about kingdom things. Pray about everything. Have guitar solos. Have beautiful vocal melody. But we all know, or at least me and Elijah and Patrick know, that it's the bass line and it's the kick drum that carries the, that carries the song. Like, pray about all the things, for real. But gosh, let, let the kick drum of your life and your prayer life be about kingdom things. And then Paul says this. This is the third thing. Move with grace as you engage the world. There's, we could talk about this for a decade. That might not be the best use of our time. So he says this, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. So he's been talking about how you, how you speak to the Lord with your time. He invites them to, to partner with, with him in mission and, and pray on their behalf so that they might go forth. And then he talks about how to use your time, how to use your words to engage the world outside. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Those outsiders are those that are not a part of the covenant family of God. And, and maybe they're in the room, they're in this room, right? We, we know that, that there are people in this room that are not a part of God's family. They've never trusted Jesus. And maybe you're either uh, deceived to think that you are a part of it and you've been doing it on your own, not trusting the work of Jesus, or you're in here, you're just like seeking stuff, and you're, you're just like, what are these people about? What is this book about? What is the gospel? And all these things that they keep saying, what, what, is, what has Jesus done for me lately? I would say, that's totally fine. But he says, in the way that we interact with the world around us, in this room, or on the internet, or in the place that we live, work, and play, and all the things, consider outsiders this way, making the best use of the time. Let your speech Always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This word gracious means kind. It's the same word as gift. Let your word be a gift to those around you. And like, gosh, I told you that I'm not trying to just make you feel bad, but this makes me feel bad because I know my words are not always a gift to those around me. The word means uh, having goodwill towards those that are on the outside. There is a, a movement across a camp of Christianity, and it's not just like, it's not just on the internet, but it's localized, right, that, uh, that seems to pit gracious speech against clear speech, like, like you have to choose one or the other, and it's not a theological distinction per se. It's not something true about God that, that shapes us, but it's but it's uh, an, an engagement distinction. How do we engage with the world outside? And to be clear, the church has missed the mark for a long, long time, and maybe they've gotten it right, and I and I'm the one missing the mark. But they they missed the mark for a long, long time. There's like this arc that swings from the Crusades, going forth with a sword to to monks living alone in caves. And those two things engage the world very differently. You understand that? Uh, you may feel that same pull, like to withdraw completely from the broken world. And you may say, you know what? I just want to get a farm in the middle of nowhere 
and I just want to feed the chickens and watch the sunset with coffee, go about my day, live my life, and I just want to escape all this. And I would say, brother and sister, I, I get you, and I have no desire to live on a farm. But, but like, the premise is true. Like, gosh, just to be away from all of the madness and the chaos and not having to think about every word that comes out of my mouth and how do, pe- how do people, oh, oh gosh, I have enemies to the left and enemies to the right, and I didn't even do anything. Well, that's the point. You should have done something. You know, you get the idea. So, so maybe you're there, or, or, or maybe you, you swing to the other side of that arc and, 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 and you feel the pull to, to raise the proverbial sword and engage as loudly and ferociously as your caps lock and thumbs will let you. Right? And you, you are hearing that and you're saying, yeah, I'm over here, or I'm over here, or no, I'm very balanced. Right? Do you engage as oil and water? Uh, when you first pour the oil in the water and it mixes for like a second, you can't distinguish it? And you're like, ah, is that oil or water? I don't know. Is that the way you engage the world? Is it that you're in the same beaker or, or cup or whatever and you see the oil and it's at the bottom and you see the water and it's at the top? Like we're in the same space but we're like not interacting together? Are you like, I'm oil and I'm in the cupboard and there's a pot of water over there? Right? Just think about how you think you're supposed to engage the world. And you know all these things to be true, like we are light in the darkness and, and all these things. And so we are to engage the world, but how do we engage the world? Some of this movement uh, that kind of pits these against one another, clear speech versus gracious speech, uh, they, they elevate clarity. And, and they elevate clarity and, and it's fair. Like the need for clarity is great. I spend a decent amount of time sitting in bleachers watching soccer games and being critical of referees. Like, that's okay. I'm critical of the team, right? And the, def- the, the formation, running three in the back, should have been running four in the back, right? Two defensive midfielders, like all, all the time, right? I get that. But the referee, one thing that just drives everyone bonkers is when they like make a call, they blow a whistle, and then they just stand there. And the clock tick, tock, tick, tock. And everybody's waiting. The side ref, he's not, there's whatever, he's not done anything. And he just doesn't say anything. He just waits for like a kid to put the ball somewhere and throw it or kick it or whatever. And this past week, wasn't the best ref ever. But he was very clear in his speech. He would make a call and he would like run over and like scream. Like this is what's happening. He would do this, handling. You're like, yes, this is a terrible call, but I love that you communicated it with him. Like, clear speech is, is a good thing. And the reality is there are Christian influencers, pastors, authors, TikTokers, whatever it is, that there are people who influence, who have platforms built on a kindness without substance. The result is that there are Christian followers who think that their own standard of moralism or acceptance is the foundation of the Christian life, and it's not. If self and acceptance and kindness are the mark, it is inevitable that love will work against truth. And if you haven't seen that, if you haven't seen that in the life that you're living in this century, in this time, in this place, you should open your eyes and look around. 
what, what happens inevitably is we will neglect hard words. We will neglect hard lines. And we will let feeling right be the compass that guides. That is dangerous. To let your subjective, changing, sin-stained instincts be your guide. You, you're in real trouble if that's, if that's the rule of your life. In her book, Generation Me, Jean Twinge, I think is her name. Just so you know, if I, if I say I read a book or I quote a line, I'm not saying that everything that that person said, and I'm, like I don't elevate that. The only book that I do that with is this one, the only speaker, author, pastor, whatever. Like we just don't elevate those things. So read with alertness, right? If you're going to do that, this is a sociological engagement on generational stuff. And she's basically painting the case out that like, ah, modern youth do have a, a bit of a me-centered problem. And she tries to support that with data. She's quoting somebody else. She says this, most emerging adults seem unaware of any moral reasoning outside of themselves. Instead, the world consists of so many individuals and each individual decides for themselves what is and isn't immoral. Morality is ultimately a matter of personal opinion. Everyone should tolerate everyone else, take care of their own business, and hopefully get along. That, that's a fair, that's a fair, you know, like, um, stereotype. That's fair. I also heard this week, listening to a tech podcast, and this guy's talking about, he deep-dived into like some Roman and, and Greek civilization going back uh, 6,000 years. He's read a ton of books, and he says, in those contexts, there were no individual identities, period. The concept didn't exist. So what I just read about the individual being like the compass, he's saying for, for the majority of human history, uh, individual identity wasn't a thing. He said there were extremist cults, secular also. Extremist cults were the, the prominent influences of the day. He said family, tribal, city, cults, as he called them, ancestor gods and nature gods. Those things cement you into community and they give you your allegiance. He said, interacting with those individuals outside of your family, tribe, city, that's, that's how you engage the outsider. Assume that they worshiped different gods which gave you not only, this is a quote, not only the right but the responsibility to kill them on sight. There was zero concept of individual rights. Now, in a world where survi survival was difficult, I'm not justifying any of this, survival is difficult, like you get in line and you do your job for this nation, city, whatever it is, that's your job. In the USA, here where we are right now, we live a little more comfortable, and so we can fight about all sorts of dumb things that don't really mean anything. That's unfair. Retract that from the record. So what does that tell us? It tells us that knowing how to engage with the world around us, especially in a world that doesn't think and act and worship and live like we do, is difficult, if not delicate. That's what it tells us. 
we, those who follow Jesus, are told to not be, uh, we're told that we are in the world but not of the world. So what does that mean for our oil and water analogy? I, I, don't, I don't know. It means that we are in this world and we're in the same glass and I don't know what it looks like to be not of it. And then we're told to uh, not love the world. You cannot love the world. But you're to love your neighbor who is part of the world and in the world, right? And so you say, gosh, how do I do that? I would say if you're incredibly confused by all that, that is okay, right? You should go to a community group this week and you should say this stuff out loud. Kick it around, right? You have Westboro Baptist Church filled with hate in name and truth and in, in, in everything. It is their truth that fuels their hate. Then you have churches that have no biblical standard or accountability for any leadership whatsoever. You have culture swings. The other side of this conversation in this clarity versus kindness, it aims to speak so clearly that, that being, my words, being, being a jerk for the sake of the gospel is a win. And I'll just tell you, that's never true. If you go through your life wanting to drop mics a lot, one, you're going to break stuff and no one will be able to hear anybody. Two, you, you're not being obedient to the Lord. It's so easy to, to drift to being known by what you're, you're against more than what you're for. You know anybody like that? Are you like that? Would somebody say, yeah, that dude, that girl, based on what I'm reading in their social stream, they are really against da 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 da, da. They really hate that person, that group, that political party, that whatever. Is that what you're known by? Or for, for truth that has no power to transform, transform for good. Like, we don't want to be known by those things. So this text, it doesn't pit clarity against kindness. It doesn't pit truth and, and love against one another. It says, be aware uh, of the influences around you, your, your YouTube feed and your podcasts and sermon streams and all those things. Be aware. Listen to those things and those voices. Be wise. Pray that I would make Christ known clearly as you go, engage wisely, fueled by grace, seasoning like salt in word and deed. And the caveat I would give you before I kind of close things out is, is there is beauty in diversity. And if you think, gosh, yeah, I'm way over here, but I really need to be way over here, I would say, no, no, you don't. You have to pick one. And there are people in this room that, that you love really, really well. It is not hard for you to offer grace and mercy to others. You just love and people would say, gosh, they're so gentle and kind in the way that they interact, right? But, but I would say don't do that without considering what's true. And on the flip, some of you spend your days determining what's wise and you, you want to build theological uh, fences and guards and, and you want to you spend your time figuring out what's biblical and true. And I would say that is great, but don't let that callous you, but let knowing God soften you to the love from God for others. If that's not happening, then, then your pursuit of the Lord is aimed in the wrong direction. And some of you might be saying, well, wow, it sounds like there are landmines all over, and it would be terrible to talk for a living. 
No one's saying that? I'm saying that, right? If you want a rule, right, I know that some of you do, like, just give me a rule, and I know Bailey's saying, can you just give me three points to, like, what, okay, so what do I do, all right? That's what Bailey's saying. I'm not going to do that, Bailey. I'm not giving you a rule. The Bible doesn't give you a rule. There's some balance. You won't get that, but some guardrails on how to engage might be like this, and I think this will be on the screen. Truth should increase your love up, in, and out, and love should demand truth. And I don't mean at gunpoint. <laughs> if you love, you should demand truth. It's part of the thing. But truth should increase your love up, in, and out. And so there are your, there's your rule. How about that? There's some guardrails for you. So how do we spend our time? How, how do we pray? How do we engage on purpose? Uh, how do we use speech to do that? So we started really wide and we zoomed in and in and, and we were like magnify, magnify over and over again. And now I want to zoom all the way back out, all the way back out to that classic film, In Time, featuring Justin Timberlake. Two characters decide to fight against the system that keeps the poor oppressed and the rich immortal for real. They rob some time banks. Apparently, it doesn't have to be on an arm. It can be like in, in a thing. So now you can like stockpile time, and that's never good, right? So they rob some time banks, and, and then they distribute the stolen time to the masses, and that causes chaos. Will and Sylvia discover that there's enough time for everyone, get this, to live forever. Don't worry, Titus. I'm not giving away spoilers. It's okay. They determine that there's enough time for everybody to live forever, but the elites, of course, they hoard the power and they use it for privilege and all those things, so they plan to crash the system and allow people to move freely wherever they want and live forever. And at one point, there's this guy and he's got a, a century, a, a hundred years of life. He's already lived like a long time. And he says to our guy, JT, who's living moment to moment, he says, uh, for a few to be immortal, many must die. He says, if you had as much time on your wrist as I have on mine, what would you do with it? And our guy JT, he says, I'd stop watching it. And I can tell you one thing, I sure wouldn't waste it. That's what he says, right? And in that we have two realities. We have not enough time and we have too much time. And the crazy thing is, both have the same problem, and it's that they're not living with any purpose other than simply existing. There is eternal life to be had, and yet every second matters. That's the tension that we live in. Our reality in Christ is, is for all who would believe, get to be immortal with God and his people forever in harmony, in peace, and in a life that we've never seen. For that to happen, one must die, and one did die, and his name was Jesus, and he was the one that was outside of time. He was the one that was perfect in every way, and yet he lives, and as he lives, he offers us life abundantly, forgiveness of sin before God himself, forgiveness of, of the judgment that's due us for our sin, and he offers us eternal life, and that's not just something far off, but it's the fullness of life today and forever. Christ is infinite, yet 
joins our finite lives to give our words and our time supreme purpose of mission and grace. In Christ, we get to use our time to speak to God and to others clearly and kindly. And there are, there are appropriate times that we get to figure out what it looks like to speak in wisdom, but we get to do that. He gives us both access to pray directly to God, and he gives us power to engage the world with the love that overcomes this world. The band can come on up. Using time wisely means speaking to God and others with grace and purpose. And so, like, man, as we respond and, and reflect and repent and, and, and pray and all those things, like, just think about that line. Like, I would stop watching time, and I sure wouldn't waste it. Like, what does that look like for you? It doesn't mean you should quit your job today. What does it mean when you go to work tomorrow? Right? I, I don't know. And that's the beauty of the diversity of the people of God. We get to respond. You can sit where you are. You can stand up and pray and sing. You can pray at that prayer bench over there. You can pray at that red tree. Someone would love to pray with you. And if you're in Christ, man, he offers his body and his blood. And we get to remember and declare that to this room, to ourselves, that, that, he, is, that he is enough. And we get to do that by taking the bread and the drink. If you're not in Christ, that's not for you, but we are for you. We would love to chat with you. I will be back at the end of this aisle. Would love to chat with you. And like I said, people will be available to pray with you. Would you pray with me, God? Thank you so much for your word and its simplicity. And, and we read four or five verses and it just seems so simple, but it's so rich, so full of eternal things. Would you set our hearts on things above, on eternal things? Would you set our hearts on, on the purpose that you've given us? Would you let us delight that we're not all made the same, that we don't have the same influence and voice? And, and would you let us not freak out about saying things too harshly or too, or too kindly, but you would, let, uh, you would let truth and love play out in a way that, that's natural, but, but it's intentional. God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.